Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs chapter 24, verses 28 to 29. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, for would you deceive with your lips? Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. As a fallen people, we have a serious problem with our mouths. The authors of the book of Proverbs must have recognized this because several of the Proverbs they wrote address the sins of speech, 157 to be exact. That's 20% of all the verses in the book of Proverbs. Reading through Proverbs, we encounter warnings against lying, slander, gossip, flattery. Such wickedness with our words is not only sinning against God, it is also destructive of other people, relationships, and community. James tells us that the tongue is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. For the sake of love of our neighbor, and for the glory of our Creator, we must be careful with our words. This morning's text warns us against using our speech to bring harm to another person, specifically with the intent of taking revenge. We are first told not to be a witness against our neighbor without cause. To be a witness is to be in a position of disclosing information about another person. The language used here may conjure images of a courtroom, a place hopefully none of us will ever have to be. However, there are many non-courtroom situations in which we find ourselves where we are called to bear witness about another person, or where we may be tempted to bring false witness against someone. The situation could be an employer inquiring about a fellow employee, or a friend asking about another church member. The information we disclose must be true and accurate, not exaggerated or made up. But even when the information we possess about our neighbor is perfectly true, we may have no just cause for disclosing it. To do so may result in damage to that person's reputation or cause them harmful and undeserved consequences. We often justify speaking ill of others or disclosing private information about our neighbor with the excuse of, well, they asked me, so I couldn't lie. But just because you are asked about the information, I'm sorry, just because you are asked and the information about your neighbor is true does not mean you are required to share it. In many circumstances, it is entirely appropriate to direct the person who is asking, your friend or your boss, for example, to the person they are asking about. Let them find out for themselves and let your neighbor speak for him or herself. When this is not appropriate and you must give witness, make sure that your words are true and your intent is not for harm. Harm is something we can avoid causing toward others, but we cannot always prevent others from harming us. Unfortunately, other people can hurt us deeply with their words. How tempting it is to retaliate, to let them have it, to give them a piece of our mind. But the second verse commands us not to consider such vengeance. Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. This verse is describing the repaying of evil for evil. But God's word exhorts us to overcome evil with good. 
This is the power that we possess in Christ to overcome evil with good. When we seek revenge, when in anger and with wicked speech we pay another person back for the evil they have done to us, we only perpetuate a cycle of sin. It goes around and around, back and forth, until the people who are involved are ruined by bitterness and hatred. But the buck stops with us as Christian people. We stop the cycle of sin when we choose not to repay evil for evil, but instead choose to do good. Which means we either hold our tongues or we speak only what is true and beneficial. Beneficial to the hearer and to the person we are speaking about, even if he or she has harmed us. Brothers and sisters, with our tongues, let us bless our Heavenly Father and one another. These Proverbs have reminded us of our sin and our need for confession. So if you're willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins corporately to God. Last week, one of the key elements in how we determine the way that we worship here has to do with the covenant renewal pattern. And so last week we covered what the covenant is. That's, that's what the whole message was about. What is the covenant? And by way of very quick review, the covenant is the means by which God communicates grace to mankind. Covenant is the language which God speaks to mankind with. And the theological definition of it is a divine promise in blood, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. So that's what we talked about last week. And as I also mentioned last week, one of the central elements of covenant is sacrament. And that's what we get to talk about today. What are the sacraments? Why are those the sacraments? And what are sacraments all about? So let's start with definitions. What is a sacrament? The definition of a sacrament is it's a covenantal ordinance or a rite. It's something that we do as part of the covenant, and it's instituted by God. Now, sacraments are outward, visible signs and seals. So there's something that we do with on the outside, something we can see, something that's tangible, we can touch and feel. And, they, and they're signs and seals that represent an inward or a spiritual reality that corresponds with the promises of the covenant. So covenant I mean, sacraments are signs and and seals. And the closest thing that we have to a proof text for that definition of a, of a sacrament is it comes to us from Paul's argument about the efficacy of sacraments in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. And he's actually saying that sacraments don't save you in this passage. But he tells us what sacraments are when he defines circumcision as a sign and a seal. So Romans 4 verse 11. And he, Abraham, 
received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So if you'll catch the argument of the, sent, of the, of the, of the, the verse there is that faith is what saves you. And Abraham had faith before he received the sacrament of circumcision. Nevertheless, when he received circumcision, he received what, what Paul calls the sign of circumcision and the, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had. So a, a sacrament as a sign and a seal is, is a biblical definition of what a sacrament is. So what is a sign? A sign signifies, what I said before, a spiritual reality. So in the Old Testament, when we have circumcision being a sign and a seal, it's a sacrament of the Old Testament, of the Abrahamic covenant, what we have is a sign of God setting the nation of Israel apart, the descendants of Abraham apart to be members of, co of covenant with him, to be recipients of the promises of the covenant. So the sign is, is cutting of flesh, blood must be spilt, and setting apart the fleshly part, the, the fleshy part. And so that is a sign of the covenant, so that now we can identify who the covenant members are. And it, so it's objective. And the other aspect of the sign, or the other aspect of the sacrament, is it's a seal. It's, it's a certainty that you are circumcised when you're circumcised. It's something that's sure. It's something that you understand. And this, this seal is a seal that's, that's a sign from God. It's a seal from God. And so we don't use seals regularly in our culture. But it, think of it like a wax seal on a letter that, that a king in the medieval period would, would stamp his seal onto that wax ring on the front of the letter. And, that, and by that seal, what was in that letter was certified. We do use uh, notary publics today. It's a similar, uh, a similar sort of thing where they'll, they, you sign, they witness it, and then they, they put their seal on it as proof that this is authenticated. Uh, one more example is if you look on your, on your passport, if you have a passport, you'll see the seal of the United States put on it in such a way that you can't remove the picture or remove the seal and put something else in there without damaging that seal. And so it's a proof of it, the authenticity of, of that document. So covenant signs and seals then are promises, they're sure gifts to the recipients of those seals that the promises that were made are valid. They're, they're reminders of this, this is something that's true for me, this is true for you. And it's objectively true because God has given us a seal of this covenant. Now we have some doctrinal definitions of, of, of sacraments. What I gave you was a very short, uh, direct, and, and I'm going to give you the, the Westminster Confession of Faith um, definition. I'm also going to give you the Heidelberg Catechism's definition, and I'm not going to get bogged down in these because uh, there's a lot there, and you, you could spend a whole sermon on each one of them talking about each one of the points, and I'm not going to do that. That's not my intention today. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines 
what a sacrament is in paragraph 27, I mean, chapter 27, paragraph 1. And this is that, that paragraph. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. That means to confirm that, that we, we, we belong to him and he belongs to us. As also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world. So the, the, the Christian sacraments still have that delineation or that setting apart, that separation of a special people. And solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So when we participate in the sacraments, we are taking vows at baptism. And when we, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are, we are affirming that we owe to God our allegiance. So, so that's an aspect of participating in the sacraments. The Heidelberg defines uh, sacraments in question and answer 66. The question, what are the sacraments? And the answer, the sacraments are visible holy signs and seals appointed by God for this end. That by their use, he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. Namely that of free grace. He grants us the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for the sake of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. So I'm going to briefly uh, explain that. The, the sacraments seal to us the promises of the gospel. Sacraments are always administered in in connection with the Word of God, because the sacraments are a seal of the gospel of God. So, uh, the, and, and what the, the Heidelberg says is that God, by their use, more fully declares and seals to us the promise of the gospel. So, it's not just, here's the gospel, do you believe? But it's, Here's the gospel. Do you believe? Now let's get baptized. It's fully it's, it's the word coming into flesh. It's incarnating the gospel. It's making it real in your life. It's, it's a visible and an outward sign that you have now participated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now let's talk about sacraments from uh, an administrational perspective. There are different covenants that we see in the Bible. There are different dispensations of the covenant. If you want to look at the, the promise, uh, the consistent promise throughout the Bible is there's one covenant and it has multiple administrations or different dispensations. And within the different dispensations, there are different sacraments. Now, last week I talked about covenants. And what, part of that is that covenants reveal God's plan for salvation over time. Over time, God reveals to mankind about the, the method, the means by which he, he plans to save us. And so we're going to be talking about the various covenant, covenants, and because of that, it's going to be a little bit of review from last week. But instead of talking about the covenants in, 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 in and of themselves, we're going to be talking about the sacraments in relation to the covenants. The Adamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve after the fall, Genesis 3.15, is a universal covenant. It's a covenant with every man who ever walked on the earth because it, had, it was given to Adam and Eve, our first parents. And it was a very general 
promise of redemption. A very general promise that the, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, the, the, the sacrament of initiation in this, in this covenant, this is a little bit out on the skinny branches, I'll grant that starting, starting here. Just, we don't have a lot of information about what the details of all that is. The Bible doesn't give us proof texts for the, for the details of the sacraments of the Adamic covenant. But what we can see is that Adam and Eve were set apart. They were, they were removed from the garden, but they were left alive. So this is, this is a separation of the holy from the profane. God was protecting them from the tree of life in their fallen state. But then we see that there's also this, this sacrament of renewal. And we see the sacrament of renewal, and that's sacrifice. The first thing we see is that what happens is Adam and Eve need clothes, and God kills animals. He sacrifices animals, and there's a vicarious sacrifice, and he covers them with the animal's skin. He clothes them. It's a substitutionary atonement. And then we see in, within the Adamic covenant, uh, the, the next generation, Abel coming and offering an acceptable sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice, the lamb that was, it was accepted. In the Noahic covenant, we, there's a universal covenant again for, for all of mankind from then on. Um, and the, the promise of that covenant is God would never destroy the world with water again. But the initiation of that covenant was a literal baptism in which God baptized the entire world with water, cleansing it of its sin, and shedding lots of blood where that all men and animals were destroyed except for the, those who were saved in the ark. And it's a glorious picture of the church. How God saves all mankind in Christ in the church. So in a literal baptism, in a literal shedding of blood, we have the initiation of the Noahic covenant. And we have the ongoing sacrifice of the ongoing uh, sacrament of sacrifice, which we see Noah offering sacrifices. He had to bring multiple animals of, uh, of the clean animals, which were acceptable for sacrifice, onto the ark for that. And um, in, in the rainbow, the sacrament of the rainbow, in that God gives his sign that he would never again destroy the world again. In the Mosaic, or sorry, I skipped the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, God initiates a generational covenant with Abraham and his, gen and, his, and his offspring, and he brings in circumcision, which I've already talked about, that sacrament. And, and then he also um, maintains the, the sacrifices. Sacrifice, you're going to hear that the, the, the covenant renewal sacrament is sacrifice, continually, steadily, entirely, all the way through, all of the covenants, blood must be spilt for men to re, re, remain at peace and in relationship with God and in order to atone for sin. That covenant was uh, reiterated to Isaac and Jacob. 
And the next main dispensation was the Mosaic Covenant where the, the nation of Israel was set apart and the entire sacrificial system and the temple was all set up for, for that, that means, that method of, of, of expiation or propitiation for sins by which the, the people would come to the temple, they would worship God, they would offer their sacrifices, uh, there was Sabbath, uh, Sabbath, uh, annual Sabbath, and through the through the cycle of the year and through the weekly Sabbath, these people were brought into fellowship with God at, at the tabernacle. And that brings us to the new covenant, the church, in which God sets up new sacraments. Because in the new covenant, the the old covenant is superseded. And we no longer have literal blood in our sacraments. We now have water of baptism and the wine and bread of the Lord's Supper. Now we only hold to two sacraments in the Protestant church, or most Protestant churches hold to only two sacraments. And those two sacraments are uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are sacraments because they're explicitly ordained by Christ in the New Testament. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. But I want to first give you just a quick point of information. There are churches that hold to uh, five extra sacraments. The, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church uh, hold to confirmation, penance, marriage, ordination or, or holy orders so going into um, taking uh, become a, a, a nun or a, or going into a monastery uh, or becoming a priest and then uh, extreme unction or last rites and that's a blessing at the end of your life before you die so those are all five additional considered sacraments by those those communions but but not in the Protestant church but let's consider the New Testament sacraments in particular now. The, 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 the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Part of the definition, as I gave you earlier, of sacrament is instituted by God. So I'd like to do a short survey of the New Testament and the institution of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So baptism, as I've already mentioned, is the sacrament of entrance into the covenant. It portrays the initial sanctification of believers. So when, when a, a, a non-believer receives the gospel and professes faith in Christ, then they are invited to be baptized. And, and that faith is followed by a, a setting apart of that individual, a joining of that person to the body of Christ, to the church. Um, that, and uh, so that, that what that is is it's faith and obedience. It's it's faith and being set apart. That it's 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 submitting to God's to God's will and affirming His commands. So this this replaces circumcision in the New Testament. Um, in, Jesus institutes this in the Great Commission. He does it in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He says, well, starting at verse 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy, and, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. Amen. And that's how Matthew, the book of Matthew, is closed. Jesus commanding his disciples to go out and baptize the world, making disciples. Similarly, in Mark 16, verse 16, the Great Commission, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And at the end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, Luke writes in verses 37 and 38, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This is just after they've been accused of murdering the Messiah that God raised from the dead. They said, What do we do? And Peter says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And similarly in Acts chapter 16, when the jailer asked Paul and Barnabas, How do we save the Philippian jailer? And he brings them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. I do want to draw one thing out real quickly here. That... Uh, Faith is the mechanism of salvation, not baptism. Though, if you were to re read these, you could get confused about that. that the, Bible, the Bible speaks of baptism as if it's salvific. And it is salvific in the sense that it points to a true reality. It's a sign and a seal of the covenant, the new covenant in Jesus Christ, in which God writes his law and on our hearts, and on our minds and he changes us and he gives us new life and eternal life so so the sign is almost confused with the reality in the language in the sacramental language of sacraments so we see all this these these commands here to be baptized and now I want to make the connection between circumcision and baptism because because Paul connects them in Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12 Paul says in him in Christ you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So here we have the sacrament of baptism initiated and I know that's a lot of verses and it's saying the same thing over and over, but it's worthwhile because God clearly commands us to, to, to perform the, the sacrament of baptism. And the Lord's Supper is similar. The Lord's Supper is the, is the sacrament of covenant renewal. And it portrays the ongoing sanctification of believers. So in baptism, it's believe and then be set apart. In Lord's Supper, it's believe and be sanctified. Believe and be made holy. And both of them are faith and obedience. Both of them are faith and obedience. These are the, the, two, the, two, the two sides of the coin of, of faith in Christ. So in the Old Testament, the sacrament of covenant renewal was sacrifice, as I brought forward earlier. In the New Testament, it's the Lord's Supper, the antitype of all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
Now, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in every one of the Synoptic Gospels in a verbatim sort of way. In Matthew chapter 26, in Mark chapter 14, and in Luke 22. So let's read his institution in Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. And gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Blood of the covenant. It's, it's a sacrificial meal. And, it, and he instituted it at the Passover meal. The, the meal in which they were, they were celebrating the Passover, in which the, the lamb was sacrificed, and they would spread the blood on the doorpost, and they would roast the lamb and eat it as a family. And, and, and they were doing it all in remembrance of how God passed over the Israelites when he was going through and destroying the firstborn of Egypt. In Luke, Jesus adds the command to continually celebrate the supper. He adds, do this in remembrance of me, to what he's already said in Matthew. So in Luke 22, verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. He's telling us, to, to do this. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And in First in First Corinthians chapter eleven, Paul reiterates Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper and displays for us that the early church regularly celebrated this covenant meal. He's talking about their abuses of it. He's saying, don't get drunk there, don't, don't belittle the poor. You know, that's not what this meal is about. This meal is about fellowship and communion and love and peace. But he says this, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And then he does the words of institution. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat it, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. So... We have the Lord's Supper instituted, we have its regular practice instituted, and in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes the connection between the Lord's Supper to the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, verses 16 through 18. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So, obviously, communion there. And then the very next verse, he says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And I wanted to bring this up because I think it's important. Because when you start, I don't know if you've spent much time studying the sacraments, but I kind of got a crash course this week. And if you start looking in, into the sacraments, you're going to hear a lot of things. And some of it's 
downright conflicting. Some of it's you know accusing other people of, of things and, and just explaining why we're not this or we're not that. But one of the things that I came across that I was struggling with is, is there was this strong insistence that the Lord's Supper was the Passover meal in the New Testament, which I'm good with. I'm great with that in the sense of the, the Passover was a type of the Lord's Supper. Amen. It, the Passover was a type of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But, but what I wanted to see and, 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 and find in Scripture to justify was that sacrifices, plural, all, were types of the Lord's Supper. Every, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to the cross, as does the Lord's Supper. So here we have clear connection between the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the Lord's Supper. We have clear connection between circumcision and baptism. And now I would like to take a moment to consider the complexity of the sacraments. Because that's pretty straightforward. Baptize new believers... Bread and wine for, for a covenant renewal. And we're going to talk about what the worship service looks like and the structure of it and how that works next week. But, but today we want to stick with sacraments. Sacraments speak of spiritual realities, and this is mysterious. These are things that we don't see, things we have to accept by faith, but they are revealed to us clearly in Scripture through physical elements. So, so they're, they're revealed to us clearly in Scripture through the Word. And the sacraments speak of those realities in physical matter, in, in physical elements. And these sacraments are so closely tied to the things that they signify and seal that Scripture confers the gifts with the symbols. When it says things like, buried with Him in baptism. Or, this is my body, this is my blood. This is mysterious. How can bread and wine be the body and blood of a man who's standing right in front of you? That's, that's, that had to be going through the heads of the disciples. There's mystery here. But in this mystery, there's glory. These, these are glorious mysteries. And there's an element... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The, the, it's a glorious mystery, but the mystery is nonetheless present. We cannot exhaustively explain the details and the ins and outs of how all of it works to the satisfaction of every person out there. It's not possible. But there are many things that we can know and many things that we can learn from the sacraments as we ponder and, and, and meditate on the mystery of Christ sacrificially substituting for us on the cross. And how we participate in that through the sacraments. But the, so the first thing I want to ponder here is the physicality of the sacraments. We use water. We use wine. We use bread. It's food. We, we, we consume it. We get wet with it when we do the sacraments. And we do this because God ordained these sacraments for us to use. But God sanctified matter in the incarnation. He created us. It was good. Man fell and all of creation was, is, is, is headed towards death. But God sanctified matter in creation. He sanctifies our bodies in Christ. As we talked about in the, the passage that we read from Corinthians earlier. Uh, 
Our bodies matter. What we do with them matters. The Old Testament sacraments were very tangible. They were real. They were guttural. They were bloody. They were messy. Knives and, and fire. and um, it, was, it, it was very tangible. The New Testament sacraments are much cleaner. They're much more elegant and pleasant. Because the blood has already been spilt. We're remembering it instead of looking forward to it. The New Testament sacraments point to the finished work of our Messiah. Nevertheless, the New Testament sacraments still point to the messiness of this, that, that sin brought into the world. We still need to wash away sin in baptism. We still need to, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in the Lord's Supper. We... Um, lost my place one second oh yes so we, they still point to the messiness that sin brought into the world and they are still tangible and physical even though they're cleaner and neater even though we can do them in, in, a, in this building here without making a mess all over the place usually um, even though God writes his law on our hearts and in our minds in the new covenant the law must be incarnated in our lives. It must have, it must take form in our fingers. We are changed and so our behaviors need to change. What we do with our bodies must change. So then what this brings to light is that the difference between the covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, is not physical versus spiritual. It's not physical matter versus ethereal. It's earthly versus heavenly. But heavenly is not what we think of usually when we think of as heavenly as people floating in the sky with harps. That's not, heavenly is real. Jesus is real. So it's not this distinction of physical versus ethereal. Both are physical. We are united to Christ objectively and personally in the sacraments. You see a person getting wet objectively they are joined to the church in covenant as much as circumcision connected Old Testament believers with the nation of Israel you are really and objectively joined to the church when you get baptized as much as the sacrificial system connected Old Testament believers with the covenant people in fact they would be expelled if they didn't participate in the annual Sabbath you are objectively and covenantally united with the church in communion when you partake of the bread and the wine. It becomes a part of you, and therefore you become a part of the body of Christ. Now, I need to make a caveat here. This is not baptismal regeneration. This is not something magic in the bread and the wine, or grace automatically inferred ex opere operato, which is the Roman term for just automatically being saved by participating in the sacraments. That's not what this is. This is the, the objective reality of covenantal membership. You are united to Christ, but remember the definition of covenant is attendant blessings and curses depending on faithfulness. But the promises you receive are the promises of the gospel, and they are great and glorious and true promises which are true for you if you accept them in faith. 
and you receive them in the, in the sacraments. So the difference is, is not physical and ethereal, it's a difference in scope. It's a difference in limited and unlimited. A difference in temporary and permanent. Where the old Israel failed, the new Israel wins. In Christ, the gospel conquers, it spreads. In Jesus, there is new life. In him, there's a glorious future, and he has established a new humanity on the earth. And this is evident in the physicality of the sacraments. Another thing we can learn is the different emphases in the sacraments. There are many blessings in meditating on the mysteries of sacraments, as I mentioned a bit ago. But one of those is that we can that we can gain a lot from is in considering and comparing the Old Testament sacrifices with the Lord's Supper. There were many different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, there and they all pointed to Jesus. But there were there were or, sacrifices for ordination of priests and ordination of kings. There were sacrifices. There were daily sacrifices. There were uh, weekly Sabbath sacrifices. Uh, the covenant renewal worship pattern is given in the three sacrifices, which were part of the worship services we see in the Old Testament. Which there are a few of them that we'll be going over in, in next week. But those those offerings or those sacrifices in that service were the sin offering, the whole burnt offering, and the peace offering. But each of those had a different emphasis. One, the sin offering was an emphasis on on repentance and propitiation, a substitutionary atonement for sin. The ascension offering or the, the whole burnt offering was an emphasis on sanctification and praise of God. And the peace offering had an emphasis on community and, 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 and setting up relationship and, and, and being fed and nourished by, by the food of, of the celebration. The annual sacrifices, the Passover, Pentecost, and booths, the Day of Atonement, they had different emphases also. Passover emphasized the salvation from the angel of death. Pentecost was uh, an emphasis of, of, of giving the law a celebration of, of uh, the first fruits of the, of the, of the harvest. And, this, and the booze was a remembrance of the provision that God gave in the wilderness, a gratitude and a harvest celebration. And the Day of Atonement was a penitential or a sanctifying celebration. Now, we just covered how the sacrifices had different emphases, but every sacrifice all contained all of the elements of sacrifice. Every one of them pointed at the cross. All of, in every sacrifice, vicarious blood was spilt. In every sacrifice, the sacrifice was prepared for consumption and consecrated by fire. It was either consumed in smoke or it was consumed as food, but it was repaired by fire and, and every sacrifice brought life and peace. They brought the promises of the covenant. Now these are all relative to the Lord's Supper. We, from this we can see many different aspects of the Lord's Supper. There's a penitential aspect of the Lord's Supper. We remember Christ's passion, his suffering and death for us. In fact, much of the evangelical world camps out on this meaning of the Lord's Supper. It's what it, it always means, you know, navel-gazing, thinking about how bad I am that Jesus had to die for me. And that is a part of the Lord's Supper. 
But that's not all there is to it. The Lord's Supper is militant. We remember Christ's victory over death, the world, and the devil in the Lord's Supper. His kingdom goes forward. The Lord's Supper is celebratory. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, where His bride is joined to Himself. And it's a huge party. It's a celebration. It's an anticipation for future glory and the assurance of the gospel prophet promises. And the Lord's Supper is declaratory. It's a profession of faith. It's a declaration that you believe that Jesus has accomplished salvation. And that salvation is for those who participate in this meal. And the final complexity of sacrament that I wanted to bring up is the sacramental nature of reality. Sacraments point us to spiritual truth. The world is physical. The sacraments are physical. But all of the world is upheld and indwelt by the spiritual. There are only two sacraments, but they point to the truth about all of life. The sacraments are covenantal signs and seals, but the co covenant encompasses all of life. In the mystery of the sacraments, we learn the mystery of creation. We learn to see through new eyes that God is active in us and around us all the time. Because the gospel is real for you and me here and now and when we first believed, it's real for you and me when we walk out those doors, and it changes everything. We need the cleansing blood of Jesus every minute of every day. And that's yours in your baptism. It's sealed upon you. We need the sustaining grace of peace with God for every breath that we breathe. We live our lives in the context of covenant with God. His Spirit lives in us because, as a result of that covenant. It changes everything for us. We, it changes who we are before God. It changes how we relate to Him. It changes how we relate to one another. And how we relate to the world. It's all sanctified in Christ. Jesus came to save the world. And in Him we participate in that. So as you go forth from this covenant renewal worship service today, embrace your membership in Christ. Hold on to the declarations of the gospel presented in his word and applied in the sacraments. Love God. Relish the peace that he gives to you. And then go home and love your wife and your husband. Love your children and your brothers and your sisters and your co-workers and your neighbors. Because this is the purpose of the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, it is a blessing for us to come together and celebrate this sacrament together especially following an entire message about sacraments. Here we remember the Lord's suffering and sacrifice, His death on the cross and the great debt that we owe for our sin has been paid for us. 
We, here we exult in Christ's victory over Satan and the world and death and all the powers of darkness. Here we celebrate our union with Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb, being reminded that we are joined to Him in baptism and we participate in His life. And here we declare and proclaim the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is raised from the dead, and that His salvation is for all who participate in faith, who humble themselves, confess their sin, and believe that He is the Son of God. And all of this is signed and sealed to you for your comfort, for your peace, and for your hope. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.